0: Hey, what's going on there, guys? Welcome to Upshot, your monthly podcast where we talk about recent creative news. So if you're a video editor, motion designer, animator, or anything in between, this is the podcast for you. This month, we're basically going to be talking a little bit about drones, in particular the DJI. Air S, what this new model is, why Mavic Air users might want to tune out for this. And that's basically going to comprise of what the technical specs are. And of course, how does it compare to the Mavic Air? And of course, we also have the iMac, which is coming out, which I think this should be coming out exactly the same day as the podcast, better yet, the 30th of this month. So of course, what makes this one so interesting? And what's the specifications of this new model. And finally, of course, we have Frame.io's Camera to Cloud training series, which of course has been released. If you're not familiar with Cam's to Cloud, and you're working with productions, it's definitely worthwhile paying attention as this is actually really quite impressive. And of course, we're also going to be talking about a few details on what we've been up to as well, essentially the new update for Photomotion, as well as the upcoming release of our Premiere Pro course, for new editors of course. <laughs> I can't pronounce DJI, DG, DJI, so here's a bit of a problem because I've always pronounced it as DGI. It's actually DJI after closer inspection. I am a professional. Um, so let's just get into the drone side of things uh, with the new release of the DJI Air 2S. This is a small thing, but I've always been impressed with the DJI, especially with their Ronin series. So let's just look into the technical specs of the Air 2S. Essentially, it has a one inch image sensor with a 2.4 micrometer pixel, can shoot up to 5.4K video in 30 frames per second, but that's pretty impressive by itself. And also comes with two more directional obstacle sensors than the DJI Mavic Air 2. So with all of that said, if you're not familiar with the DJI series in terms of their drones, it's not too much of a worry I'm basically going to break it down for you in terms of what essentially are the differences. So how does it compare? We're going to be talking about the Air 2S in comparison to the Mavic Air 2. essentially because I think the Mavic Air 2 was released actually less than a year ago and a lot of Mavic Air 2's users might be kicking themselves right about now. I know I would feel exactly that sensation if I bought Mavic Air 2. I'll lead off with a couple of facts that might make you feel a little bit better first off and those of you who aren't familiar with drones just bear with me a second as I put people who do own a drone at a little bit of rest and one of the downgrades is of course that it shoots a 20 megapixel photo in comparison to I think the Mavic Air 2, which shoots 48 megapixels. And of course, you apparently get, well, this is according to their main site, of course, three minutes less flight time, no wind. So for you Mavic Air users, you got that at the very least. However, in saying that, that's not really counting for much. And those of you who don't own a drone, this is where the point that you can sort of jump in now. And essentially, the trade off between these two models is rather quite negligible. So, to cut the long story short, if you're looking to buy a new drone and looking for what new model can really service you, this is all dependent, of course, that you're using this for like light productions or alternatively, you're just an enthusiast, then yeah, the Air 2S is definitely the model that you want to go for. However, in saying that, we are gonna go through a couple of the specifications of it as well. So just bear with, as I said before, just to cut a long story short. Now, if you're nervous about that difference in megapixel quality, I really wouldn't. And I'll use two articles as a point of reference to put your nerves at ease if you're looking into this model. Now, Digital Photo Sequence has a great article on the megapixel myth and how sometimes it can be marketing speak to make something seem better. And to reinforce that, mdavid.com.au shout out because that was an extremely interesting article. And that guy does a fantastic job of putting all of that information into perspective. I'm going to just try and adapt that into this podcast, although I am butchering it. I would fully recommend in checking those two sources out. Again, that is Digital Photo Secrets, and that's on the Megapixel Myth, and that's capital M, david.com.au and as I said before, those articles do a fantastic job of explaining it. However, it's really all to do with marketing speak and when we get into megapixel size at this point, you know, unless you're printing stuff off for banners, it's, it's going to be blown up to ridiculous size. 20 megapixels is actually fairly fine. I know that's probably fairly heretical to say, but in that use case where you're just out and about, having a good time with it, just shooting on location, doing some stuff maybe for vlogging, yeah, 20 megapixels, you're not going to notice too much of a difference in terms of that from 40 megapixels. It's like these cameras on phones when they go up to 100 megapixels, you're never going to use all of that. Focus on the quality of the actual shot itself at that point before you get into all of that technical jargon. So don't really worry about it too much. It's more or less marketing speak to make a product seem better. So to boil all of that down, stick to 20 megapixels. It's absolutely fine, especially if you're an enthusiast. If you're maybe a professional who's looking to blow up images and uh, create band and one off from there, then yeah, that might be a little bit of a problem for you. But if you're not doing that, more than likely the 20 megapixel camera is absolutely fine. Plus you also get a bigger sensor size as well. So, you know, make of that as you will. So on top of that larger sensor size, what else do you get? With the DJI Air 2S, you also get the ability to shoot 5.4K footage at 30 frames per second, mind you, but that also includes the 4K 60 frames per second, which I think the Mavic Air 2 is also capable of shooting at. And you also have two kilometers more 1080p transmission to your phone when you're operating the drone as well, so you can go quite the distance with this. And on top of that, you also get two more collision sensors too. And just to rub salt in the wound, it comes with a neat new feature called Master Shots too. What this does is basically lock onto a placement or subject within your shot. I mean, it could be a person, it could be a crowd, or even a building for that matter. I'm not entirely sure how all of that works, but to me it sounds like a very cool feature. So once you've assigned it a an area essentially to track, the drone will then automatically gather a series of master shots, which is, well, exactly what you think it is. So it will create a load of establishing shots of Earth say for example, a specific building or location. So it's really good for getting those nice, I would say either documentary-esque or vlogging kind of shots really. And I'd imagine that's an incredibly useful feature for again, uh, vloggers in that matter, where really you can just focus on setting up. You've already got the, drone in the background, gathering all of your master shots while you're getting out either, say, for example, a phone or sound recording kit. um, And you're doing like a short bit or even camera if you're using a camera for vlogging, although that might be a little bit more setup time. But point is, is that you can also be able to get all of that on film as well while that master shot is going, giving this really nice behind the scenes look, essentially. However, that's just one idea out of many that you could probably use this master shot for. So it's really quite interesting. I wouldn't use this, though, for films. not in that regard. You want the composition to be carefully constructed. You don't want to leave that up to an automated camera process. It's going to look like a really nice establishing shot, but it's not going to look like anything picturesque. That's the one sort of takeaway I would say for that. Unless you're, say, for example, like a CGI artist and you're going to put things in the background of that shot, then yeah, sure, why not go for it. But I would say if you're going to use that sort of master shot feature, use it. If you're a vlogger or you're a documentarian and you're essentially just grabbing a master shot. Off a location or uh, select a few subjects. There are other cool features that you could use with it as well though. That's just a couple of ideas from the top of my head. Or urban exploring. How did I forget that one out? Urban exploring, that'd be a really cool feature. There's also the fact of the matter is, is that the other thing about owning a drone and being able to operate the drone, some would argue that actually half the fun of having a drone is just being able to operate it, not Uh, essentially let a a machine do the task for you. But I don't know, it depends on your perspective on what you find fun within the production process. If you find that fun, then yes, you'll go for it. Although it just requires a little bit of time for you to be able to set a shot up. Alternatively, if you're a little bit tight for time on location, you can just set it to do a master shot and it's over and done with. However, to get out of all of that jargon, uh, there are a few drawbacks that you might want to know. And that's even outside of what I mentioned area in comparison to the Mavic Air 2. And the first one is I'm getting a lot of this information from a Verge video, just a quick heads up. So do check out their video on the Air 2S because it is a very good thorough breakdown. Okay, so just getting into the details about it. Right, so while you can shoot at 4K at 60 frames per second using the DJI, DJI, DJI Air Air 2S, there we go. While you can shoot at 4K at 60 frames per second, you will encounter some cropping. And this goes for a lot of these other things, whether or not we would be patched out with uh, software, but essentially it will still instead use um, half the image size sensor to gather that. So just be aware there will be some cropping. And if you're shooting at 5K 04 k at 30 FPS, you will get that very wide-angle look, um, much like the guy in the video. I really don't mind the wide-angle look. In a matter of fact, I really prefer it in terms of establishing shots and whatnot. From there, call me disgusting if you will, but I really like the idea of having like this low master establishing shot and having that sort of bowing, warping near the side of the edge uh, of the image because it just gives the impression that the shot is larger than it is. I think it personally makes a scenic shot look more, well, cinematic for that matter. But if you're not a fan of that, then yeah, you're not going to really like that feature. So if you want to get rid of that, you're probably going to need to zoom into like a 4k image or try to remove it within post. Also, if you're using anything outside of the standard picture profile for all of you D log fans out there, you can't use the zoom function, you'll have to be on standard picture profile in order to zoom in. So that's probably more for professional users. Users, but just be aware of that. However, that also goes for photos, too. So thinking about it, if you're more of a professional user, you're going to need to plan out your shots very carefully. You won't be able to do as much as you'd like to if you're shooting on flatter picture profiles on the fly. Uh, safe to say you're going to have to stick to the standard picture profile, which yay or nay, depending on how much time you have within post in terms of color grading and whether or not you enjoy color grading. But that's not my ballpark. Speaking of the the HDR range is also not as good as the Mavic. For those of you rocking the Mavic and feeling a little bit down in the dumps, don't worry, the HDR on your model is a lot better, so you're going to have far more vibrant images and the colors will be, I think, a little bit better. So at least there's that. Another thing, and this is going back to the case in point about the changing things on the fly in terms of recording, you also don't have the ability to change the aperture mid-flight too. Although you can change the ISO. I don't know, like if a shot is too dark, whacking up the ISO might have some disastrous consequences. So there's lots of small caveats, which can all be a little bit of a deal breaker when you add them all up especially if you have a specific shot in mind or scenario. So a lot of this, as I said before, though, might be fixed with a firmware patch, I'm not entirely too sure. But at the time of recording, that's some of the prevalent issues that the Verge ran into when they were dealing with the Air 2S. Now, if you're concerned about the extreme fine technical camera details, a Reddit user by the name of Adventure Unfolds looked into the Mavic and in his summary that user apparently found that the Air 2 had less overall sharpness and HDR detail in comparison to the Mavic. That user also created a whole entire video about it, by the way, and it's called Where the Older Mavic Air 2 Beats the New Air 2S, an image comparison, just in case you're interested in how these two images directly compare to another. To break it down, I think he's probably correct. Like, you're going to get less defined images from the Air 2S than you would with the Mavic. However, the advantages of the Air 2S over the Mavic, it's it's more than enough to make up for those unfortunate drawbacks, especially when you're talking about enthusiasts, you know, where you're not too worried about uh, the actual image quality, you're just out there having a little bit of fun with a drone trying to get some really cool shots or alternatively a vlogging series where like the quality of those shots to that detail. Again, this is going to sound slightly sacrilegious. It doesn't really matter too much. And even if you just get a 5.4K shot and you just downscale it into a 4K shot, it's one of those things It really I don't think when you're going into the actual use cases, it doesn't matter that much. If we were talking about, you know, where we all use it within really high production standards, then yeah, that would matter a lot. But here, I don't think so. Although in saying that, if you're going to use one of these drones for getting that high production standard and maintaining it across all of your equipment, then you probably done right with the Mavic. However, if as I said before, if you're just running and going and getting shots or works for uh, low profile clients, where that standard isn't essential nor is it necessary, then yeah, the Air 2S is probably a better deal. So how much will this cost you? The more important piece of information I know everyone is probably screaming at me for. Well, it costs $999. Let's just round it up to a K. It costs one grand for the standard kit and that does not include anything else. So for that Fly More bundle, which includes a load of other goodies that is actually going to cost you $1,300. So that's a little bit more than the Mavic when we put it all into comparison, which I think costs $100 less. So going back to that other question, if you're a drone operator or enthusiast, which model do you go for? So as said before, if you're an enthusiast, I would say the Air 2S is definitely the model where you want to start off for. But if you've already got a Mavic, don't worry about it. You don't need to trade it for the Air 2S. You're perfectly fine where you are. Although if you're looking to create those more cinematic style of shots where you've got complete control over the image, you've got HDR, you know, you're going for the best possible perfect image, then surprisingly enough, I think maybe the Mavic Air 2 might be the one that you want to go for. So much like anything, it depends on your use case, but you know, probably for most people, that's going to be the Air 2 that they're going to want to go for, as that's a really good model for just all round purposes. However, just a little side tangent, for professionals looking for the best of the best of the best, something that you may, for example, use on a car commercial, we have something slightly different for you to consider. Essentially, if you own a Sony Alpha Series camera and the lens, just be aware this next thing is going to be slightly costly we have some news about the sony airpeak and if you're not you know aware of what the sony airpeak is it's essentially sony's version of the pro version of the dji uh, dji I'll get it right eventually um and this was announced back in January and this would be sort of like a professional drone setup for those people as I said before who are shooting things like car commercials where picture quality really does come first to put things in perspective if you're like ah oh, that's That's probably me. I could probably do with one of those. Um, This would be on the same playing field as the DJI Inspire 2. And that drone costs near enough two grand. So that's going to be quite expensive. And I wouldn't probably (laughs) get that at all. Way too rich for my blood. Of course, you wouldn't own this sort of piece of kit. You'd probably rent it out to save yourself a metric ton of money. But, you know, the point is, is that it's going to be costly. It's a professional grade piece of camera gear. And, you know, that's just the cost of that particular drone series. I personally don't know what the cost of this Sony version is going to be. Um, although I would suspect somewhere within the similar price tag. And that's probably not even talking about gimbal costs either, which is separate for that DJI um, example. By the way, you have to buy the gimbal and the camera separately. Uh, that's just the cost for the drone. The Reason why we're talking about this, even though it was announced way back in January, is because the second promotional video came out showcasing its resilience to wind speeds. And yeah, on paper, it looks really impressive. And that's the key phrase here, on paper. As with the Air 2S, the thing is, is that all of those specs look great on paper, but there are a load of small drawbacks within the fine print that may impede uh, your progress in terms of a shoot. So just bear that in mind. However, for pro video production, it might be a piece of kit that you could rent in the future. So just be aware of that. If you've got a Sony Alpha series, hold on to that for a little bit longer because, you know, you could be able to rent out a drone for some really stunning looking shots within the future, which would be probably better than the DJI alternative, or at least if you're a Sony Alpha user. Seeing what they've done so far in terms of uh, the track record that Sony's on, there will be some measure of integration with it all. So it certainly would be probably a better experience to go with the Sony drone than it would be to go with the DJI drone. However, that's all merely speculation. Of course, we'll have to wait till releases releases to find out for sure. TechRadar, I've also done a great article written about this by Mark Wilson, and this is the person who I'm basically quoting for in this one. Um, and as we said before, I won't spoil everything. However, in essence, while this is technically more applicable to Pro users, bear with me because much like the next story coming up about the iMac, it's not so much this model that's interesting. It's more about the implication. Sony are competing or looking to compete with DJI, so who knows, they might release this professional version, and then over time they'll release more consumer grade versions of their drones. So keep an eye on that within the future. All competition is good competition in my books. Right, so on to the next thing, and the thing is, is that this probably is interesting, but as I said before, it's not so interesting in regards to that the fact that it's happened, or building on the hype train here is more interesting because of the implications down the road. And this is actually to do with the new new 2021 24-inch IMAX um, that really aren't too far off the horizon now. In a matter of fact, by the time this podcast goes out, I think they should be ready for order. So, you know, if that's something that you're looking for, then go ahead and check it out. However, just bear with me for a second before you go off, because it's not going to be for everyone. And you probably have reckoned that as well, just by uh, sheerly the news. Basically, I think uh, Apple are replacing their 21-inch models with the 24-inch models. So there's not going to be a lot of computing power in this one. However, there might be some down the road in terms of their Pro versions. So, just stay with me for a second, and we'll just go over some of the technical specs. Also, just a small fact: if you're interested in getting the, I think it's the spring-loaded Apple AirTags too, um, probably quite useful keeping track of your kit on location. Uh, those should be out by now as well. So the 2021 iMac looks substantially different from the previous generation. Uh, if you haven't seen it just yet, <laughs> you're in for a little bit of a shock. You definitely would recognise this thing a mile off, um, as being different from the previous generation or even models like aesthetically it's far more vibrant. They've gotten rid of that chrome sort of plating Uh, that's gone completely now. It's a bit weird seeing Apple with color, especially in regards to the computers. Best way I can describe it. It's almost like a Technicolor sort of scheme, which is quite different from the silver that you normally go with. The other thing to consider is it's even thinner. Now it's 14 millimeters thick. I think that is insane. It's no longer got that sort of arched, you know, where it sort of slopes off at the back. Now that's completely gone and it's completely square. So if you remember, was it the cheese grater max and the monitors they came with? It's got a similar structure to that in that regard, except obviously it's a lot more smaller and you know, it's, it's completely square. It's, it's almost looks like a really classy monitor. In a matter of fact, that's even thinner than my monitor at home. And that's just a monitor. That's not a computer at all. Um, of course, obviously. I know I've kind of butchered all of that, but it's, I don't know. It's the best way that I can think to describe it. No one. Never quoted me for describing things. Don't rely on me to uh, describe things. It's not going to work. So let's just get into the technicalities of it. Yes, it does have that new fancy M1 Apple chip replacing the Intel's one within the previous generation. Each model has, I think, eight CPU cores um with the cheapest model only having 7 core GPUs rather than 8 within the other models so if you're going for the cheapest one yes while well, you'll get 8 cores uh, in terms of your CPU you'll only receive 7 cores in terms of your GPU each model has 8 gigabytes of unified unified 8 gigabytes of unified memory and of course two thunderbolt 2 ports at the very back as Linus pointed out is not exactly a lot. Uh, You also get with the mid-range and the most expensive version, uh, a dedicated gigabyte ethernet, which is rather quite nice, especially considering how much of a pain it is to get an adapter working with Thunderbolt. But again, that doesn't come with the base version. That's only for the mid-range and the more expensive version. So uh, I don't know what to say. However, you might be confused if you're looking at the model. Whereabouts is that? Well, actually that's attached to a new brick power supply, which is well, difference. Outside of that, getting back to the screen, you're getting now, and I think this is probably the most important thing, you're getting a 4.5k display now with the ability to still, apparently, hit 500 nits, which is, if you don't know what that is, it means it can be extremely bright and still maintain that color accuracy with the same retina display and talking of color accuracy, which Apple has dominated for quite some time now. And talking more about the peripherals now, looking on the Apple site, while you do get the Magic Keyboard with all three variants of the 24-inch iMac, you only receive the Touch ID with the two more expensive models. We'll get to prior in a bit, but basically the Apple Touch is a a dedicated key on the keyboard, which has touch functionality. So I'd imagine you'd be able to unlock your Mac just using that touch function, very similar to like the back of your phone. You also get a 1080p webcam ran by M1, so for meetings, this thing is going to look and sound rather quite nice. Speaking of variants, as I was mentioning earlier, let's get to the really important thing. What is the butcher's bill? Well, the lowest, the seven core GPU, 256 gigabyte storage model that weighs in at around about $1,300, which I think is actually comparable to last year. Then we have the eight core GPU 256 gigabyte, which also comes with two additional USB 3 ports and gigabytes Ethernet, and that weighs in at around about $1,500. And for $200 more, you could get the most expensive variant, which comes with 512 gigabytes of storage rather than 256 gigabytes. So that's $200 for 256 gigabytes. Never change, Apple. Never change. I wouldn't say workstation, actually. I'd say this looks more like uh, like a simple home PC more than anything else, or at the very least, maybe something to work from Photoshop. And you're getting that with eight core CPU, eight core GPU, eight gigabytes of RAM and 512 gigabytes of storage, you're looking at 1,700 dollar dues. If you're marketing this for consumers, it's probably style more than anything, but okay, I used to be very cynical about this kind of thing. Hear me out and consider the following. To just get the monitor, not the computing parts, that could even think about matching the iMac or MacBook's color accuracy, that retina display, you're easily spending over a grand, if not more. Yes, while you could get the LG series, which is cheaper, it does have its problems within its own. I wouldn't fully recommend that sort of product. However, for the high point of $1,700 or the low point of $1,300, you're getting a monitor, which is perfectly calibrated in terms of color. You know, it's extremely bright and functions actually as a computer too. Yes, while it's not the most powerful thing on paper, Paper, at least this version. What you could make a point of is how Apple sort of integrate all of the hardware together within an OS that runs rather quite efficiently. You know, say what you will about the Mac OS and the hardware. You know, eight gigabytes is rather quite laughable. It's utilised extremely proficiently in contrast to you know Windows OS. So that's where I think it really does strive. It's not so much of the parts within. It's the way that the parts are actually used and they used the best way they possibly could be. And I think. And that's probably what Apple really trumps Windows on in that regard. It's just so much more efficient in terms of the tasks that it carries out, especially for creatives. I noticed that even with a Mac that has out-of-date parts in comparison to a Windows machine, in dealing with certain H.264 files, especially in regards to a GoPro, it will be a comparison between those machines, even though one of them is the latest and greatest in terms of hardware. That's one of the things I think that Apple really does well. It, it's It's not so much about the hardware, I mean, it's obviously about the style, but it's also about the efficiency between programs and how they interface with the hardware, which I think it always seems to beat Windows hands down. Again, if you have the latest and greatest PC, it probably doesn't really matter to you too much, but it's just about getting the best bang for your buck. And I think Apple have that down in terms of that proficiency, not in terms of the actual cost of parts though. So, you know, that's a different story, but I'll leave that there for now. However, in contrast to all of the sales talk I just gave, I would be sceptical and hold on purchasing this one just yet. I will even extend that over to the pro versions as well, which, you know, haven't even been announced, but you know, you can see that right over the horizon. So come on there. Um, This is a new chipset. Whilst Apple probably have done a measure of quality control, I would expect there to be some compatibility issues with various different apps. I mean, I don't know. Uh, point is, there are no reviews for it just yet. So. Advice I mean, this is advice that served me well before thinking about dropping 40 pounds on a pre order for Cyberpunk. Wait for the reviews before you buy, and obviously, that also depends on what you're looking to do as well for day to day workstation. Maybe even just sending off a couple of emails and editing a few pictures, you know, that you've taken. Yeah, that's probably fairly all right because it's hardware which is consumer grade, and you know, it's not really meant for anything too intensive. However, there inevitably will be a Pro model. So the question is, what do you need from your machine? Although for editing work or dare I say after effects, maybe it's better to save the money and wait for the Pro version. You know what I mean? Just, just wait for that one. However, if this is any indication, the Pro version will probably look very similar and perform comparably to the previous generation, if not a little bit better due to that M1 chipset. However, I also would be curious to see how they deal with GPU in terms of editing as well, because GPU nowadays is pretty important. Although to end this topic on a more light-hearted note, some people aren't exactly a fan of the new vibrant layout. Personally, I rather quite like it. It's a little bit of a change. Don't get me wrong. It is. But I really quite like it. Um, It's nice to see color from Apple instead of that same chrome layout. If you want to remove that vibrancy, some companies are actually offering some skins and I won't name which companies are doing so. It's not exactly the same chrome skin, but it is completely sort of blacked out and some are even offering to do so for the very low price of $500. So, you know, make of that as you will. So the next topic is about frame. Um, we've been over this a couple of times and we're going to be talking about Cams to Cloud. Essentially, Cams to Cloud is a new service by frame, basically creates a smooth workflow and uploads footage directly from cameras as soon as it hits record. So you can imagine as an editor that's really, really pretty handy. It also allows producers, directors and others to review the shot entirely remotely before recording starts as well. So. In essence, it turns the camera live across the cloud and also records to the cloud in a, a I think it's a proxy H264. So on top of saving the blood pressure of anyone who works as DIT and allowing editors to scramble to footage sooner, although currently, as I said before, the footage is uploaded as H264 proxy, so you still need to replace that. It basically allows a better synthesis across production, regardless of distance. Well, in case you're thinking, well, I've got my butt magic camera, I could probably do that. I'll get they're all set up and then, oh, that's a really nifty tool. Thank you very much, there, in taking a upshot with. This is actually probably more useful for larger productions. And this is really like there is an alternative. I'll mention it in a second. Um, Don't feel too let down, especially in instances where it's a crew of people operating. So for example, a red Komodo, let's put it this way. If you see a tray on set with a very stressed out data Wrangler, then this is probably a good tool to bring up with your line manager. Of course, just make sure that if you're not using this, and it's a game changer for your whole entire production, make sure you get the credit. You might be in line for a promotion. Although if you're a solo creator or a small roster of crew, you can actually look into a very similar sort of workflow, albeit not as fancy. And you can do that with something like uh, a Gnarbox, uh, which also has frame integration, of course, although that's something we've covered in different podcast way back, so I won't get into too many details. Just trust me, if you're looking to getting footage to the cloud as quickly as possible when you're in a small production, uh, look into the NARBOX. box. I haven't tried it out myself, but it looks really interesting. Now onto the point of why we're talking about this segment again. They've released a whole entire training set of videos for users. They've created a series 13 episodes long. Doesn't cost a penny to watch, of course, and it thoroughly explains how to use the system and a couple of ideas on how to integrate it within your production from setting up the wireless connection to editing the proxies dailies within Premiere, Avid, or DaVinci. It's a fairly ambitious sort of thing that Framer are trying to get to. In the first video, say for example, they assume by 2031, there will be a complete obsolete of SD cards within cameras. That is quite ambitious. I don't know about that one. I kind of like SD cards for redundancy, but I suppose it never hurts to aim quite high. So outside of that small little jab, let's looking over the series so far. It also gives a really good overview of the application too, as well as the potential work you might want to use it for. As before, it's really meant for larger productions. So if you're a single camera sort of person, this probably won't be the thing that you're looking for. It's more meant for larger productions. However, with the right training and appropriate planning, this could be a really helpful tool for producers to set up, especially when considering how to conduct their production workflow. So as little time is wasted as possible. You know, you don't have an editor sitting on the hands, basically waiting for footage to appear over some sort of Dropbox or WeTransfer link or server. am I talking about? You're not going to be using Dropbox or WeTransfer if you're in a larger production. Ignore what I just said. This all sounds rather quite repetitious. And if you've been tuning in, you know, we've been talking about cams to cloud or something to do with frame for quite some time. But it's kind of cool as this is a kind of front end innovation in terms of shooting. You know, you don't see many other companies creating this kind of service. And I would be curious in seeing in terms of numbers who is using this cams to cloud feature already. If you want a cool video to start from in case I haven't sold you yet and went I don't blame you. If you're not entirely sure just yet, go to episode five, tips, tricks, and gotchas. And right now, it's all within that very early and I'm literally quoting this word for word. It's a very early adoption phase of this. I kind of share the same sort of faith that Michael has within the video because um, even before cams the cloud in the before times, I remember working with production houses who were using frame on a regular basis uh, to review edits. And you know, that wasn't exactly far, far long ago. That was, you know, that was a recent development within the last five years, I'd go to argue the popularity of frame, just even to review edits, you know, it's pretty clear that this is early tech, though, you know, still some learning curves to iron out lots of additions and strategies to make it more effectively. You know, obviously you're only sending off h264 proxies at the moment, but I'm pretty sure somewhere down the line as technology gets better, you could probably end up sending full raw files over and you know, there are a couple of hiccups here and there. So say for example, their cloud service had a little bit of an outage the other day with the Amazon web services. So while they were able to fix it quickly and conveniently, it does lead to some concern, especially with projects under a tight turnaround. And I'd be very curious about this. I wouldn't essentially use this for recording anything live just yet because, and you know, this is the reason why I'm a bit like, I like SD cards because with an SD card, you have the recording there. It's at least the backup. If that upload gets disrupted or There's a problem, and especially with H.264 files, it just takes one interrupted stream and then the whole entire file is corrupt. If there's any problems during that stream, does that just corrupt the whole entire file? So that's one of the sort of caveats that is sort of have with frame IO's to the Cloud. I don't know enough in that regard about how footage is transferred over. And that's the reason, as I said before, I'm very skeptical about that getting rid of SD cards the whole entire way. However, um, Michael does make a very compelling case for the service in terms of Cam to the Cloud um, and that's if you adapt to these systems early, then when you do go to the mainstream, there's less of a learning curve later. And again, I completely agree with him. I have no doubt that cams the cloud will probably be something that you're going to see a lot more of in future. It just makes life so much more convenient for everyone. Okay, so last but not least, what have we been up to? We are finishing the new version of Photomotion. It should be done within two to three odd weeks. Uh, We've decided to make just a couple of adjustments so you guys get your hands on this new Photo Motion version ASAP. Just you know, give us a little bit more time. We will have it done soon, you know, promise. We're also finishing up on our premiere course. This should be out within a month, of course, from the point of releasing of this podcast. We've tried to make it as straightforward as possible. So you guys start at the very basics, you know, setting up your folder structure, uh, why doing things in a certain way is important, for example, importing things via media browser for metadata and going into details about creating sequences, what presets are there, as well as a couple of the shortcuts as well. What we're trying to do is be as detailed as possible without being overwhelming to get video editors on the right track in using the right strategies. One of the things about looking at YouTube videos, especially YouTube courses and tutorials in particular, it's not so much about either like the project setup, it's all about the techniques. This is how you cut, this is how you do this. Fair enough. But what Why is it important to, say for example, structure your bins? It's a very small thing, yes, but I think it's very important to get into the right frame of thinking in that regard, structuring out everything so you can find assets easier instead of just being like, just fling it in and then fling it into a sequence. Best of luck. And as I said before, that's kind of what we're trying to do here. Just be as thorough as possible in that regard. So you'll start off with the first section getting started. Then it's off to creating your first YouTube edit. And then it's off to building on that edit, showing you users what's possible within press as well as introducing them to essential graphics, uh, sound manipulation, sequence management and so on. And for each one of those elements above, we have a whole entire separate section allocated to where we go into much more detail about other things. So say for example, uh, setting up a simple text sequence within Premiere, what kind of effects to use, how to get motion blur without actually applying the motion blur effect, just use the transform effect and change the shutter angle, but that sort of thing. And of course, this isn't something that's just going to be, there we go, we've done it, we're just going to leave it be because that kind of defeat the point. Adobe is a ever evolving piece of software and it constantly gets better. Say, for example, within last uh, month's episode, we touched upon the captions workflow, which completely changed from the last update in a good way, of course. But the point being is, is that this is a live sort of thing. So it will be updated over time, replacing those tutorials with the new up to date versions in case Adobe changed the whole entire mind about Premiere. We're not just going to leave this tutorial be and then just forget about it. So, outside of tutorials, we'll also be releasing a customer feedback forums soon, just to basically let you guys shape our next products, and of course, what you want to see updated within said products. And as usual, we're also working on some secret sort of projects that you guys will, of course, love. So stay tuned for that within the future. Right, so in saying that, uh, don't forget there, guys, if you have a minute or two, please feel free to follow us on YouTube, follow us on Instagram, and of course, stay creative, stay safe, and see you guys in the next one.